the less is more idea is is really true, um, I think. And and so I always believed in the process of multiplication by way of subtraction, and I think that's an that's a key element to my work and a key element to what really makes life kind of magical is those simple moments that you realize when you subtract things down to their essence, they explode with like a, a, a multitude of uh, meaning. I feel privileged to have connected and talked with so many brilliant people over the last eight seasons of this podcast. And with all those interviews, very few felt as comfortable and welcoming as this next episode did right from the beginning. When David walked into the Rule 29 studio, it seemed like in a few comfortable and easy minutes, we started talking about art and relationships, creativity, and uh, even the fact his friends have encouraged him since he was a young boy to be a, a doctor or a therapist, a coach, a priest, and an artist to name a few. What I felt that day, and I've been able to learn about him as we've hung out more, is that David Walls Haskins is one of the rare and wonderful people that truly care about each encounter with another soul as one of value, depth, and humanness. We ended up talking well over our allotted time, and I'm sharing only a portion of that conversation and story mainly surrounded around the way he sees and creates. I hope you enjoy hearing and entering into David's story as much as I did. In fact, I'll share one of our initial conversations before the interview even started. Enjoy the show. When it comes to that, you know, like you read these articles and it's just like, when, at what age did we just stop, you know, exploring wonder or being open to you know, those sorts of things. And, you know, I laugh all the time that I chose the robot over the computer, but I think at that time in particular, I was in a, I was in a creative mode, you know. As a kid? Yeah. Yeah. And I I wanted that to somehow enhance that experience. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, (laughs) I don't know. Like, if you think about it, like, you did fine. You got a computer. Like, you eventually got one when it became a ubiquitous thing that every kid had. Right, like, right, right, right. So, yeah. and then at that point, there were no more Tomies, robots. That's true. Right? So, you took advantage of the moment. You seized the day. And, and now you're, you're one up on everyone else for it. Okay, now see, you and I should have had this conversation years ago. Because now I feel so much better about my choice. <laughs> really? You, you, so I, I was feeling that from you a little bit like, well, I chose well, a robot. And I'm thinking, that's the thing to choose. Like, that's the right one. Yeah, I think, it, you know, during that time too, Yeah. I don't know, I think I'm older than you. Uh, I was born in 75. Okay, so barely, a few years. Yeah. But if you remember those, those days, like in the 80s movies, it was all about like robots and, mm-hmm. you know the computers creating things and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And mm-hmm. I had this perception that I could have been, I don't know. Ahead of the curve. Right. Gotcha. But then I had so much fun with the robot. Yeah. I remember we like played jokes with it. We had, right. you know, oh, yeah. we had, um, you know, like I said, it could like serve you yeah. pour pour milk in your cereal. It was just, and you're still having fun with it. And it's still a great icebreaker, which is what it's doing to us right now. Right. You know, and it's a symbol of this whole place of like choosing something that is quote unquote inefficient or impractical on your upward climb through life. Right. In place of something that brings you a sense of curiosity, wonder, that brings joy and humor to the people in your life and to yourself and makes story happen. I mean, that's what, that's what Rule 29 is all about. Oh man. I actually called it... Um remember what the name for the robot was I think it was it was like chili for chillin because <laughs> <laughs> how 80s 90s is that right yeah. there right chillin and then I had um chili and I draw it you know I kind of drew him and I would sign like you know back then you actually wrote notes to your friends and I would mm-hmm. sign it with like a little robot face <laughs> I mean it became I guess it became part of my because who had a robot this guy yeah I was the only guy see yeah and that also changed something in how you saw yourself, because it changed how people saw you, so that affects how you see you, and that also sends you into a certain trajectory through life, and I think, I think you did the right thing, Justin. I love this. By the way, I cannot believe I'm going to a therapist. I should just talk to you about things that I have problems with, 
or I'm hung up on? I'm I'm always available. <laughs> I mean, I, I you know it's funny you say that because by the way. I'm, I'm being dead serious because one of the things I've been thinking about, and the reason why I put the robot there, was you're right for an icebreaker. Yeah. I also love it. It like was a, a really great season yeah. of my life, and for my mom, hmm. it was an, ex, an beyond extravagant gift. Yeah. You know, uh, I did <laughs> yeah. not get gifts like that. That's why you no know, kid had one. Right. Right. <laughs> that, but also you know. <laughs> You know, like if you remember back in the day, if someone had like the Coca-Cola sweatshirts that were big, yeah. I had one that looked like it, but it didn't say Coca-Cola on it. Right. right. It yeah, said I like, those, ain't yeah. this cool? Right. Yeah, it was right. like, no. Yeah. And you're like, no, that's not Max that cool. Max yeah. like almost yeah. not quite. Yeah. yeah. That's funny. So yeah, so it symbolized that. As I shared at the beginning of this episode, David is such a great conversationalist and easy person to talk to. And I wondered if he had ever thought about where he got his intentionality and space to listen and share. And it was no surprise that he had an answer for that. I think I learned that from my dad. He's really good at, um, both my parents are good at giving advice. Um, good at listening and thinking through things. And they never punished me. They would um, walk with me along, like walk alongside of me when something went wrong or something didn't, you know, go according to what the rules of the house were or whatever and we would talk about what happened and like what showed up for me there like what was that about like what do you think might help you not do that again like mm -hmm. so I was like giving myself my own punishments of sorts I'm like well maybe I should like you know not go to this thing or I would give myself some sort of right. and that that taught me how to think uh, I think carefully about life and they modeled for me how to walk alongside of somebody and help them unpack their own dilemma without solving it for them, but helping them kind of see things from different angles, perhaps. Um, and my dad was always very good at that as a, as a, um, as a father. He, he didn't, I mean, he had other things that he struggled with, uh, which were very difficult, and that's a whole other story. But. Uh, in terms of just uh, um, struggling with with mental illness, yeah. But um, but he really knew how to be present with me, and he would always get out a, a yellow pad, and as I talked, he would make notes, and I'd just be dumping all my thoughts. As I've always been a verbal processor, as you'll hear here, and um, <laughs> and and he that's good for a podcast. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's yeah, great for yeah, podcasts. Yeah. It's like so. Anyway, he would really. Um, he would condense all these thoughts and when when I was done he would have this little picture drawn or a little diagram or graph or something and he would turn around turn the yellow pad around and kind of slide it to me when I had kind of been done with everything and then he'd walk me through everything I said I hear you saying these things and I hear you struggling with these things and as that all just kind of was laid out before me I felt seen I felt heard but then he's like, so in summary, I kind of see these are the main two things you're working through. And you're here and you're wanting to get here, is that right? You know, and I was like, yeah. And so he would then like help me process some possible ways of doing that. And that was just an incredible helpful process mm. to be modeled for me again and again, which is really what a therapist <laughs> kind of does. Yeah, what an amazing uh, yeah. just gift that that is, you know, yeah. we all know the impact of, you know, our parents on our lives, especially dads. Yeah. But Wow. Yeah, it was really special. Yeah. I'm forever grateful for that. So I think that really modeled something for me. And my dad also was really big at uh, caring for people that were on the fringes. Like he picked up hitchhikers. Um, he would uh, care for people that the rest of the community would ignore um, and have, have them over for dinner. I mean, that stuff really impacted me, which later led to my life with Tom, which is a part of my story, a man with disabilities that I have cared for for 25 years, you know. So, yeah. I, this, first of all, personally, <laughs> we're, we're connected and we're getting to know each other. Yeah. And I've already heard several things that I had no idea about you. So we're going to get to Tom. I'm definitely <laughs> yeah. going to add that to my question. But let's go back to something you said. You were talking about your friends. But so yeah. when did you start your band? Uh, that The band kind of got going. I started playing music and writing songs in uh, the like 1990 I think around 91 and um yeah, 1990 I guess and so by 96 I was pretty serious about it um 
working really hard on it. And then um, I formed a band. Uh, my friend that I grew up with, who was born without his right hand, um, had met, reconnected with me, and we sat down, and he was just like, man, I love that you're playing music, and you're writing songs. I've always wanted to play guitar. And I was like, you will. And he was like, uh, and he like hold, holds up his arms, <laughs> yeah. like, uh, help me out here, you know. And I like had this spark of inspiration, and I like drew up this design, and I slid it on a napkin over to him, and he looked at it, and he goes, that might work. And, you know, within a few weeks, he was... We were at a guitar store picking him on a guitar, and he was learning how to play guitar. And he became just incredibly proficient at it, and to this day, he's an amazing guitar player. Um, so, so hold on, hold on, let's, let's back up a little bit. What was on the sketch of the napkin? <laughs> oh, it was, uh, it was like a, a holder that, that would hold a pick that would go around the end of his arm um, that like continued to kind of evolve in, in sketches over the next few weeks, and he really perfected it with um, uh, a a uh, circular like compression ring, a copper compression ring that had a strap that went through it that was actually made out of like bra strap material because uh -huh. it was really soft but strong and it had a velcro kind of bit. My mom helped sew it up for him and um, and then um, we added a little screw through it that let the pick set in it and, it and that way he could pull a pick out put a new pick in when it wore out oh, awesome and then we had this little sticky tack stuff that we put behind it so that it would give it a little grip on the end of his hand or his the end of his arm which is like kind of like a little hand of sorts and and um and he could get a lot of control and pick like crazy out of that and, and imagine like your whole life wanting to do something thinking it was physiologic physiologically impossible to pull mm -hmm. off and then all of a sudden someone's like no you can do that like like just breaks open you know all the impossible the whole new world yeah, yeah i mean he just took off it was amazing so i'm very very happy with that uh -huh. um being able to be a little part of that story now what was the name of your band we our band was wave and then uh eventually that kind of for a time turned into ancient wave because we there was another wave band like in florida or something that we were afraid we were going to run into difficulty with so we moved to ancient wave um the concept of the, the name was just about <clears throat> the, what everything is made of, you know, like sound waves, light waves, like everything is waves. Um, and so we were trying to find something very elemental, which mm -hmm. again continued on in my practice and my art and all that I do. Um, so yeah, it was it was a short-lived thing, I suppose, for a time. What was your role? Like, I know you wrote the songs, but did you, were you a singer? Yeah, I wrote the songs and sang. I mean, we all kind of sang, but I. Um, our songs were not heavy lyrically, they were heavy uh, instrumentally. There was lyrics. They're very lo uh, long, like, in the sense of um, a lot of movements, you know, very much the classical movements, but blended with, you know, rock sounds. Uh, I played acoustic guitar, <clears throat> played some drums, uh, some cymbals with my feet, um, and uh, we had a bass player that also played woodwinds which was really fun. Um, and then Chris, he played electric guitar, but we had a synth processor connected to his guitar so he could play any instrument through it. Wow. Um, so that was really cool. So he could like play oboe through his guitar uh, or piano. And then we had the drummer. And just to make sure Chris is the guy with the... the, the yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so... Well, thank you in advance for sharing with me some of the sound so I can put it on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. Do they exist? Of the band? Yeah. Um... I mean, they're on a record um, that's part of a game called Music Mayhem, if you could find that. Um, there was a game inventor that came along that was friends with Chris, and he wanted to make this record that you spun as part of the game, okay. but he wanted to put real music on it, so he put our music on that, which was That's really cool. cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we have anything. There's nothing online. Um, I'd have to dig. But it was funny, because our band, we went out to California, and at the just like um, probably a lot of bands are like this like one of their the first concerts you know like the lead guitarist meets a girl and like yeah and he stays that was Chris and he stayed there married her and has two kids with her and, oh wow and so when we came back we came back with uh, without Chris without Chris <laughs> and um, and that really shifted my career like into what I do now actually so All right. so Chris was a big part of my life and continues to be one of my best friends. Oh man, that is so cool. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this question. You can answer it in any era you want, like either when you're super young yeah. 
or this post Chris time, mm -hmm. right? So, um, what was the earliest piece of art that you made that you're very conscious of? Meaning, like this was significant for you. Hmm. Um. Well, a few come to mind, like a couple from when I was a kid, and then like. Yeah, well, let's hear this. Um. Well, the first thing I can think I made, which I still have hanging on my wall, is um, it was like a burlap, it was a framed piece of burlap material, um, fabric, and I had sewn into it a spaceship, and it was like when I was five, and I remember sitting in the hallway drawing it on a piece of graph paper and then sewing it. Um, it's a spaceship, and there's just stars, and it. so it's just the sky. That's cool. And and. Presumably, you know, me, you know, shooting into the sky, uh, which again, my, is a huge part of my practice, so the sky and the focus on that. Um, and the other thing I remember doing a lot as a kid is making um, basically installation art, like really elaborate um, experiential works uh, of, of blankets and chairs and tables and, you know, you might call them forts, but they were way more than that. and that people could actually enter into, like my family members and stuff that <laughs> would take you through an experience uh, in an embodied way. Um, and then that, that leads me to like my first piece that I think was a really significant work as an adult, which is um, The Sky Wall, which uh, was at an architecture firm in a room very much like this at the end of a conference room table. Um, the wall that really led to an alleyway and, and really um, was a north-facing window, so no light really came through it, uh, all of a sudden held the living sky, you know, moving and floating across the surface of it. Um, doing that piece, which was a long time coming, a piece that I had first envisioned in, I think, 04, and so 10 years later, 14, 2014, it, it became a real thing. That was a real big moment for me to, to manifest that. Um, after struggling and wrestling with like both how to do it in an effective way that fit my vision, but also doing it in a way that made sense um, in terms of the narrative. Like I didn't want to just like pull off a gimmick of hey, this guy's on the wall, you know. Like I was really interested in nestling that into something art historically significant that like meant something to me, and I, I was trying to get permission in a sense to do that. Um, and I needed to basically go to school to do that. I needed to go back and learn art history and understand that, that men and women, like mankind, we've been putting this guy on the wall since the very beginning of time. Like that's one of the very first, if not the first uh, representation of art we find in, on cave walls is like constellation art, you know. So we were taking this mystery of what's beyond, what, where did we come from, what is that out there? And we were bringing it down and putting it on the walls of our living and our dwelling places. And um, there's something really significant about that, but that all throughout history you see that happening again and again from Starry Night, from Van Gogh to Caspar uh, David Friedrich's, um, you know, wander above the sea and fog, just looking out, you know, into that sky, into that unknown, um, to like, um, uh, J.M.W. Turner's incredible seascapes that are really skyscapes, to be honest. I mean, there's like very little sea in them. And and then you have uh, Magritte pulling the sky into re re really unusual places, often on the walls. Um, and and that really hit me. I got to know Magritte and, as a kid from uh, in fifth grade at uh, in Elmhurst from the picture lady, and she brought in. A famous painting that was at the Art Institute called um, um, On a Threshold of Liberty. And in it, you can see it at the Art Institute. It's a very large and long painting. And you're looking into. Dude, a, I know exactly yeah, what you're talking you're about. You're looking into a room. You're in a cubic room, actually. You see the two sides and the face of it. And in each window, there is like a piece of an elemental piece of life, like flesh, fire and sky is one of them and it's down kind of on the ground like where sky shouldn't be on the wall and then there's a uh, a cannon you know kind of pointing out into that sky and i loved that i was like what like this doesn't make any sense it was surrealism i you know fifth grade you don't even know what that means 
and pretty much everything is surreal to you when you're young and growing up. You're making all kinds of odd connections mm -hmm. to things and um, so that really did something to me. And then walking to and from that class, I walked across Wilder Park and it was full of a, um, a blacktop path that had a lot of dips in it and so the sky would be held in those dips every time it rained. Mm. So the rain would, would clear and the blue sky with the fluffy white clouds here in Chicagoland would And you'd up. see the reflection in And the I'd water. see the reflection yeah. down and so the sky was on the ground. And I would get lost in that. I would just stop and my mom would be like, where were you? And I was like, I was, <laughs> I, mom, it's so cool. Like you can see the sky, you know, like in the well, ground. Let's talk about that too, just so the, the listeners can understand more that first piece that you're talking about. So Skywall? Yeah. So. Um, you know, uh, if I was to walk into a somewhat rectangle, rectangular office room, right, and mm -hmm. then enter one end, mm -hmm. what would I see on the other end? The sky. You'd see a square, uh, what would appear to be like a sticker of the sky stuck to the wall. Just like a totally flat, almost like a two-dimensional sticker of the sky, you know, as if you just, you know, took, it's, there's no thickness. It's like literally on the surface of the wall. This is achieved with a reverse bevel aperture, so it's cut out of the wall. The hole is in the wall. And with the reverse bevel, you don't see the thickness of the wall because mm -hmm. the bevel's on the back side, so it comes to a razored edge. That's why it looks almost like a sticker. It's like the sky stuck to the surface of the wall. And through that hole is a huge mirror that like unfolds from the side of the building. And, and as it opens up, the sky falls down and, and complete the aperture, of course, like overlaps the edges of the mirror so you don't see that there's a mirror there mm -hmm. so you only can see the sky and the sky appears th it's three-dimensional I mean your eyes are really confused because your eyes know what real life is they, they know what HD TV is right and they know what life is like real life three-dimensional space and both your eyes are, are, are working they're seeing different parts of the sky you know the, the cloud is three-dimensional it's it's real it's moving it's and there's nothing between you and that sky. There's no glass like partition coming like down. You can't walk in front of it. You're, you're not going to cast shadow on it because it's on the other side, right? Yeah, so. exactly. And you can't, it's not going to reflect you at all because um, there is literally a glass pane that moves up behind the wall. So you could reach your hand right through it. Right? So there's nothing there. In fact, you can feel the breeze come through. You I can, didn't even know that part of it. Yeah, you, wow. can, you can smell, you know, the smell of the breeze. You can hear and feel the breeze. So it feels very surreal, like somehow you're in the up house, you know, and you just mm -hmm. went like floating up into the clouds. Yeah. Um, and everybody knows, you know, the sky's up. So even an animal perhaps understands that. So to see the sky forward in front of you, looking into that endless kind of blue, it's, it's a very strange feeling. And people make all kinds, I mean, when they would walk into that space, I mean, it was really fun to, to see the reactions. Uh, the architect said, you know, I used to have these really hard conversations in here about finances with people. You know, we're going to do this huge house that's going to cost this many millions or whatever. And they'd come in in their three-piece suits, you know, all stiff and kind of ready to negotiate, you know. And now they sit there and they're just like, oh, look, a bird. Like, <laughs> they're like a dog, you know. Just so like they're squirrel. mesmerized. Yeah, yeah, just like so mesmerized by the simplest bit of wonder and it really um, it changes the whole feeling of the room. He said it's hard to get uptight about money when the heavens are literally sitting at the table with you. Mm. Um, and and that, that made me really happy to hear, you know. That's really cool. But you shifted you shifted the whole experience. Yeah, it was a huge shift to that room. And, uh, and then of course it brought in light in the north window and you wouldn't see the, uh, you could no longer see the ugly uh, alleyway the alleyway was gone so it was just like pure blue mm. or you know you would see birds or clouds yeah floating through. whatever was in above you in the sky that day yeah exactly are your parents still around yeah they live in southern illinois how do they feel about your art <laughs> well it was like a, i think they've always liked it um they weren't sure about it at first in terms of like you know being a profession i mean but they got there by way of like i was already aiming for, you know, music as a pr profession, and that, that one also is, is a rough sell to the parents. <laughs> so by the time, you know, I, I wore them down with the music, so by the time I was moving to sculpture and installation art, they were like, you know, 
they'd accepted, you know, whatever. Yeah, like yeah. this is Dan's on his journey. Yeah, he's yeah. on his journey. But I, it, I think after um, my first solo exhibition um, at a museum, like that, that really did something. You know, they shifted in a way that uh, became incredibly supportive, and and also selling work was. <laughs> was great, you know. When I sold my first work for like three times the cost of their house, they were like, oh, this is, you're gonna be okay. <laughs> we're no longer worried about David's yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. So the band dream is done. Chris stayed in California. Mm -hmm. And uh, so here you are. Mm -hmm. Where did you start? Well, as a band, the dream was always to expand beyond the band and do, um, works that were kind of like installation art um, with the band. So I had this vision to, to create this incredibly immersive uh, experience that the band would be a part of. Um, that we really wanted to pull people out of the city into the wilderness to get into these elemental spaces where you were uh, kind of removed from the distraction of the city life and and on just under the stars, you know, under the purity of that environment. There's something cleansing about the desert, um, which is also why I like the Midwestern winter, because it does the same to you. Um, and, and so I wanted to do that uh, when the band kind of started to look like it wasn't going to continue in that direction. Uh, obviously, I shifted to a thing that was more of the periphery of, of the band, like a, an element we wanted to include in the band and it became my focus. And um, so instead of it just being like, hey, we could do concerts in, this, in the wilderness and we could do concerts inside of spaces that, you know, like in the 90s, I had this vision of a screen that wrapped completely around you and mm -hmm. above you. And so a completely immersive environment. And so I started developing this idea, I called it the cube or the sphere. And it was a way of it was basically VR, you know, but in real life, mm -hmm. right? And and so I even started working with DARPA, you know, like people at DARPA to like develop this idea. Um, and they were like, we'll build it and then you can do other things with it. But we used it to like train soldiers and things like that. And that's when they lost me. So I was like, mm -hmm. no, I would rather not do that. <laughs> so, um, so I continued to develop the idea and I spent years studying how to pull this off. Um, and at the time, in like the early to mid and late '90s, like that idea was crazy. Like they're like, "What? You want to do what?" Like now, that's that's happening, right? right? Um, but there's a lot of questions about how to tell a story in 360 because you don't get to control where the viewer sees. You're not cropping the image. You know, the director in a film gets to completely control where you look. But if you're inside this spherical dome space, I mean, every time you come, you're going to see a different film. Mm -hmm. And so that was very exciting for me. It was like pioneering into another way of telling story and really not just making a new, uh, making a work of art, but making a new art form mm -hmm. that could like open up all kinds of other doors to, to, for creatives. So I imagined it being a space where you could have a live concert, you could do um, live cinema or live theater there, you could do... Um, um, symphonic, you know, yeah, productions, poetry, like so, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I just, I at that time, you know, we're not quite as it's not quite as bad now, but there was a time when when people's interest in classical music was really going down. It was it was waning severely, and I thought this could be a great way of like imagine watching a symphony like in the space like mm -hmm. this where you have elements connected to the baton of the conductor and to the strings of the lead cellist and violinist and that's creating light and sound um, effects all around you in the stoned space like it becomes alive in a very particular way so that was all very exciting but it was really on the bleeding edge of technology and it was taking a lot out of me um, to, to get to that and so I realized I can't really uh, spend the rest of my life like I could, but then that would be it. That's like my thing, right. you know? And I realized that whether I did that or not, that was the future. It may be 20 years out, but it was coming. And and uh, it is, you know, there, the sphere is coming to Vegas right now. It's being built. Mm -hmm. So, um, which is a funny story because the people that I shared that idea with are the people that are building it. Come on. Yeah, I'm serious. So, that's a little strange. But, you know, maybe it was just in the ether. I don't know. Um, but, but... 
the idea of that space, I wanted to create other works around that space. So you didn't just walk into it. You experienced other kinds of uh, artful encounters that like slowed you down and got you ready for this really unique experience. Um, I wasn't interested in entertainment. I was interested in a more contemplative movement uh, that would draw a person into a space emotionally that when they left this experience with their group of friends, they're more likely to not say anything to each other all the way to the car and just look at each other like, I don't even know what to say. Like that was, that was, I don't even have words. Like mm -hmm. that was, you know, to get to that, it, it's hard to do. Um, it's easy to, to press buttons and freak you out and, and like, you know, do something that is maybe in the category of shock and awe, whatever. But I wasn't interested in that. To do something that's truly beautiful, that truly um, elevates your soul to a place of, of wonder that is more than just like wonder, you know, mm -hmm. like a place of great meaning and profundity and it shifts you, you know. That kind of art is very difficult to do. And I was really interested in working with artists um, that had this vision to do that and I knew you couldn't just throw someone into that you need to kind of like work them into that so I started creating these other basically installation art ideas that you would encounter before you came into this larger experience and when that larger experience became unfeasible we realized we're not going to be on the like spending the rest of our you know days here of the, of the 90s and into 2000 and to, till 2020 trying to build this thing right so we're like you know, maybe when technology catches up with our vision, we can implement that down the road. And we have talked about doing that more recently. Um, but why don't we work on what we can do? We can create these encounters that will really shift how you see yourself and each other, you know, the world around you. And so I started doing that. I had a team I worked with and they really encouraged me to just say, you know, let's put the cube idea, the sphere idea, let's put that kind of on the shelf for now and let's focus on what we can achieve on our own and I was like well, I can do a sky wall you know and so that's what led to that okay and so let's 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 pause there because that's one of the questions I have so you know you had this epiphany right you had this great idea yeah and you were realistic with it saying yeah. like I don't want this to define me and then you transition right to the sky wall so I guess my question is what is your creative process or how, how do right. these ideas yeah. evolve in your mind, right? Because right. it wasn't, I'm assuming it right. wasn't like, no, uh, no, uh, you know, no cube. No so cube. We're going to sky wall. Sky wall. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, boom, boom. Yeah. How did you get there? We'll get um, well, that's a great question, Justin. I think, so when I would come to people with the idea of this cube experience, they are always like either two, one of two people, you know, just like, blank faces like I don't even know how to explain it's like if you would go to somebody 200 years ago and explain a modern film right they just look at you blankly like I don't understand like, or just go to the 90s to people about the internet like what is <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly to, right I'm gonna talk to people so we're talking about something that shifts your understanding of art or, or experience so deeply you, you, you really can't understand how to grasp it right but there were other people that did instantly grasp it and they're like you could do anything in that space and they would jump to well, those are the fun conversations because yeah. they were just like well how, how what would you do like how, how would you start to limit you know when film first started of course we're just watching trains come into the theater and people run out screaming you know right. it was just a it was just a wow effect you mm -hmm. know and then they started showing that as comedy filming people running out of the theater and showing that and be like, remember when we thought those were real trains and we ran out screaming? So then it became funny. Um, and then eventually we're like, we could tell a story and we could bring the sound and all of this continues to evolve. And that's what this cube idea was. It was like, I had to find a really simple way to work with it because it would be too much for people. And I wasn't interested again in just blowing your mind for the sake of blowing your mind. So to me, I went to the element like kind of approach to it I thought I would kind of pitch to people like if you can completely control your environment like 100% like snap your fingers and I have control over your reality you, you, that's a lot of power and it wouldn't take much to move you in some place um, emotionally uh, you could probably do it with a few colors and a few shapes 
and how those shapes move around you and how they fill up your horizon line could tell a story in the simplest way. And so I started thinking about that and that led me to thinking about the elements of life, the elements that move us, what makes up reality that is the most satisfying. Those little moments, the light, the space, the way the light would come through and hit my pillow in the morning um, and maybe catch a little dust on the way, you know, create a shaft of light, physical light. You know, you're now seeing the physicality of it. You're realizing that, wow, this is a real thing in space. Light is actually here. Um, there's a, there is like a tactility of, of sorts to that. Same with sound. The sound wave is actually moving through space. It's a physical object in a sense. Um, how do I help people understand that? Like, what ways can I like bring us into those elemental experiences? Because I felt like we were inundated with just too much noise, too much um, overstimulation. So to move us into a space of contemplation, um, I thought could be really helpful in, in moving a person into an experience that might leave them a little different than when they came in. And not, um, you know, not to, to uh, you know, go too far with the idea of uh, my my work with Mies van der Rohe, of course. But the less is more idea is is really true, um, I think. And and so I always believed in the process of multiplication by way of subtraction, and I think that's an it's a key element to my work and a key element to what really makes life kind of magical is those simple moments that you realize. When you subtract things down to their essence, they explode with like a, a, a multitude of uh, meaning. And that's what a poem is, you know, and you can read a poem like a hundred times and keep getting new things out of it, you hmm. know. So I really believed in, in that, and that's what led me to light, space, time, and sound, those four elements that kind of make up our experiential world. So that's like your palette. Yeah, those, those right, are for a lack of better term. Exactly, so, yeah. So is it, I don't want to oversimplify what you did, but is it something where you're sitting there and thinking, wow, how could I, how do I bring a sky into a room? And yeah. then you start, and then you start deconstructing that or, or. Yeah, I thought about, um, exactly. I, I thought about my, um, my experience with Magritte, my experience with the sky on the, on the puddle, in the puddles. And my experience with the sky in life, like I love going to the ocean. I love going to Lake Michigan, where there is just sky and earth, sky or water and sky. Uh, I love the Midwest. I love the plains because you can get out to a space where there, the sky just becomes more legible. It's right there, um, touching the earth in a very real way, which of course we live in the sky. Like the troposphere is here, starting at ground level. So this conversation is happening in the sky, technically. Mm -hmm. And we just don't think about that. Mm -hmm. And it, that it, there's, it's a part of nature that there, we couldn't be more intimate with. We live it, we breathe it, we, we're, we're just completely uh, sustained by it. And so for me to bring that down into a really physical way was really interesting to me. And to me, the best way to do that was to hang it on a wall but not as a gimmick, you know, like Yoko Ono, like put a camera on the uh, outside and then put a, put a TV, you know, a CRT monitor in a gallery and it called it like Sky TV or something, you know, like that's neat, right? It gets you to think about the sky maybe live and it turns it into a work of art, but it's still not the sky. And you got to go outside and look up to see that. But there's something different about tilting your head back and looking up, which of course you experience anytime you're outside, mm -hmm. and that's very much the work of James Terrell. His life's work is bringing the sky down to ceilings, um, aperture ceilings all over the world. He's got hundreds of sky spaces. And I loved those too. Those were interesting to look back up and see. But I was, it's still removed. You can't come towards it, and you don't really feel like it's in a different position. It's still above you. And the sky is here, we're in it, you know, and I really wanted to make that more legible and relational. Mm -hmm. And so to me, yeah, it just like hit me like, you know, Chris's invention to play, play guitar. I was like, I just put a mirror outside of a wall and, and put an aperture on it and boom, like you have a painting that is the actual sky. It's, it's not a representation of the sky, it's letting the sky speak for itself. Mm -hmm. It's like the completion of this 
thousands of years of mankind trying to, to interpret the sky and put it on the wall in some way. I'm like, now it's done. It's there. It's like, this is it. This is the final, you know, I love it. the final move, you know? And I was like, it's never been done. I thought, this is crazy. You know, like, well, how has this not been done? So that was really special to, to do that and to be, you know, at the end of that sentence, that art historical sentence, you know, like, here we go. And now it's done. Like the sky, the sky is here with us. Um, and then from there, I thought, you know, immediately the day I came up with that, I was like, well, what if I also made it like a cube, like a sculptural work that could stand on its own and, and the sky would be held in this, in this cube that you could encounter and, and interact with. So, yeah, so let's talk about this since you brought that up. So the sky cube interaction, again, for those listening, um, <clears throat> it is a cube. Yeah. And very, uh, very big, eight feet by eight feet. Yeah. Eight and feet. it's got mirrors all around it. Uh, well, it depends on which one you're talking about. Yeah. There's, oh, okay. There's, there's, oh, that's there's, right. Cause there are several. Yeah. There's several. I was thinking of the one at Farnsworth house. Yeah. Well, cause we're, we're going to transition to me's here soon. Yeah. But, um, so the, the one that, um, uh, we're going to experience at the Farnsworth house. Yeah. So that one, so you have a couple iterations of the sky yeah. cube. So this one has mirrors on all sides, which kind of bring the, the reflect the, the landscape surrounding and, around yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. And then depending on which face you're looking at, right. then you also experience the, the like a sur- sky wall. surrounding environment and then you'll see the sky right. looking at you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So the sky, the first sky cube was at Elmer Start Museum outside of Mies van der Rohe's um, Cormac House. We have talked about Ludwig Mies van der Rohe before on this show. But he is incredibly important for this episode because of Mies van der Rohe's influence and intersection with David's work. Mies van der Rohe was a German-American architect that lived from 1886 to 1969, and he worked largely in Chicago. He was commonly referred to as Mies, and he is regarded as one of the pioneers of modernist architecture. David and Rule 29 have a connection to one of Mies' seminal works, the Edith Farnsworth House, which at the airing of this episode David has an exhibit on the grounds called Image Continuous, his latest version of the Sky Cube. And I have to tell you, it is just breathtaking. And that was his, probably arguably his lowest, most grounded building. I mean, he's, he's, he's the inventor of the glass skyscraper, right? Mm-hmm. So he brought us into the sky for people to live. The first two skyscrapers he built were actually apartments. So people got to live in the sky, you know, in a way that I, you know, we know we're living in the sky right now here on earth, like uh, with our feet planted on the earth, but we don't think of it that way, you know, but when you go up into a, a quote unquote skyscraper, you really feel more like we're in the sky, you know, and that, I think that was special, um, historically for architecture to do that. So is that your key connection to Mies is both the living in the sky and his, his approach to the less is more. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I didn't know about the less is more thing so much when I was kind of living by that way. Um, I, maybe I knew the phrase cause it's a pretty common phrase, uh, that people do like kind of give to him, but I don't think I understood that so much. Um, until later after I had already been working on the skywall, you know, but I wanted to make a sky cube and I was really wanting to do something with the Elmhurst Art Museum because the property that it's sitting on was my best friend's house growing up. Oh wow. So they raised that house and he moved in high school and they started building that. And, and, and so I thought, man, to go back there to make my first big work publicly on the space that I grew up playing on, in the park that I walked through and saw the reflections, you know, <laughs> oh, that's on the so pool, awesome. I'm like, this has got to happen. This right? is poetry, right? Right, here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I was like, um, and you know, across the street from where I learned about Magritte at Hawthorne School. So this is all right there. And I thought, I, I really want to do a work that relates to that building, that space. And then I learned this, this house that I grew up seeing down the street, which they moved to build the museum around, was Mises' uh, prototype for the house of the future. It was this glass house. It was going to be like something anyone could have. And it gave you this transparency with nature. And it was really special. And I remember seeing it growing up and thinking it was really a neat house. It stuck out on the block, like all these other towering and this little one-story ranch glass cube. I thought, man, that's that's cool. But I didn't know who Mies was growing up or yeah. anything, you know, even though <laughs> Chicago is full of his buildings. Um, 
And so, yeah, once I started learning a little bit more and kind of doing my homework and understanding these, and I realized what that house was, and I thought, man, you know, if you did the, if you do the research, I'd never heard anyone say this, and still haven't since. But the design of the McCormick House at Elmhurst Art Museum was, if you look at the original drawings for his very first skyscraper, the Promontory Apartments, it's that house. It's it's beige brick, book uh, book ending, two glass walls, which is what that house is. And if you go to the Promontory Apartments in Chicago, his first high rise, the first international style high rise, um, it doesn't look like that. And it was because it was too expensive, and so they kind of scrapped that design and they, they did something that was heavier, more concrete, and, and um, less glass. And so his first all-glass skyscraper, you know, was 816-880 Lakeshore Drive. And, and so what, what happened with that design? You know, that, that first skyscraper, that was going to be the world's first true glass skyscraper, um, it became the McCormick House. A one-story, eight-foot ceilinged house, and I thought, poetry of that, you know, it's like, I was going to bring you to the sky. So I thought, what if I brought the sky to it, you know? Mm. So I bring the cube to the, the courtyard outside that house, and the sky is just always there looking right into that house. And as you walk into that, you know, walk across uh, what is considered the carport, as you enter the house, you see the sky cube always kind of glowing bringing the sky. Now they're conversing out every day, you know, having this kind of conversation. So to me, there, there was some poetry there, and so I used the same dimensions to make the cube. So the house is eight feet, so I made an eight-foot, you know, sky, uh, sky cube. I used uh, mild steel, which is what the house is made from. I used white tenemic paint, which is what the house is made with, and all of Mises' buildings are usually sprayed with tenemic paint. Um, and so it was, there was a lot of like, you know, con the configuration of that work in relationship with that house just had a lot of poetry um, and meaning to me. I, I thought, this, this needs to be here. Well, I didn't have an invitation, so I just decided to build it. And I was just going to bring it to them and just like gift it, you know? Like maybe not permanently, but like just be like, hey, I made this for this space. Would you show it? I thought this would be a great way to get my career going, you know? Um, and in the midst of that, someone from the Art Institute found out about my Skywall, came out to see it, <clears throat> and we had a long conversation about it. He loved it. And so he championed me to um, their senior lecturer of contemporary art, and she championed me to her friend who was happened to be the curator of the Elmhurst Art Museum. Wow. She reaches out to me. I connect with her, we sit down, I tell her about all my work, I, I show her, I take her on like a studio visit, if you will, through my computer. And I said, um, so, you know, she loved the sky wall. She's like, could you do something like that here? I'm like, well, actually, I'm designing a piece right now for right there. <laughs> for and your for, museum. For your you museum. And she's yeah. like, are you serious? Like, we, we would love that. Like, what were you going to do? Just like knock on our door? I'm like, yeah, yeah. she's like, we would have, we would have been happy to take that yeah. you know so it all worked out I didn't I never had to do the cold call of sorts um and and That's so awesome. yeah so they they said yeah please do and and then they purchased it from me you know so that was that was another win wow so that and started the that was the first sky cube and then I built another one in Palm Springs uh, off another contemporary house that has a lot of similarities to that house in terms of mostly just glass and steel but it overlooks the the valley of Palm Springs and brings uh, the sky to uh, on the axis of the, one of the walls of that house open uh, and, and leave you like kind of in this long path walking to the sky cube out in the mm -hmm. desert there. And then, and then the one here at Farnsworth House <clears throat> is unique because Farnsworth House is one of the most famous glass houses ever made by Mies. Uh, the only glass house of, of this kind of uh, presence that Mies made. It's his like masterpiece, you know. And um, and the other glass house that more people maybe know of called the glass, glass house, house yeah. by by somebody that uh, is of course well known, Philip Johnson, was an inspiration was, was inspired by this house, you know, and Johnson like uh, when he was uh, the uh, curator at MoMA um, you know showed this house as a model you know, back in, I don't know what year it was, like the 20s or something. 
our thirties. I'm terrible at remembering that, but I should get that down. That's right. I'll, I'll go ahead and put a voice over there to help. You out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, so yeah, so, you know, people think of the glass house, they think of Philip, um, Johnson, but I really, that was inspired by me and, yeah. and, and this house here in, in outside of Chicago. So I really just thought this house is really special. You know, it's really bringing us out into nature. It's connecting us with light space, um, time, uh, and sound in a unique way. It's really putting you in the elements and it's separating you and yet drawing you in, separating you from the city, bringing you to the wilderness in a way that interacts with the environment in a really unique way. Um, and so if I was going, I wanted to do a sky cube for years that was completely glass, not just, you know, obviously there's a glass mirror in a sky cube to reflect the sky through the front aperture. Like it's basically a sky wall that's encapsulated, right? But I thought, what if I could make one? And this was like in 2010, like I was like, what if I made one that was glass and it was mirrored inside and out or stainless steel mirrored inside and out? And I thought, well, if I did, it has to be inside a, in a glade, like a wooded open, a opening in a woods. Right. Because then the cube it disappears, it, it, it melds with the environment and it doesn't just meld with it, it reflects back to you what you just passed and ignored, right? Hmm. So the thing that you just passed and you were just like, I gotta get to this thing, you know, this sky cube in the woods. Now it reflects you in relation with the living environment and the, the landscape and light that you just kind of maybe weren't really looking at. And now it's framing it relationally with you. So it creates this relational frame. And I thought that has to happen in a, in a special place. And I didn't know where it would be. So I sat on that design for years. Uh, the, the director of the Farnsworth House the one previous to the one that's there now, and invited me out to walk the property and see the space because I'd been working with these, I'd been doing other wall sculptures that do work with reflection that were built off of uh, the IBM, one IBM Plaza, his, his tallest building, his last building actually, which is in Chicago, right between the corn cobs and the Trump Tower. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and I really wanted to uh, see the Farnsworth House, I'd never been there. So he invites me out and I walk through. And as I'm walking into the house, there's this opening in the woods to my right. And I look and I immediately, I saw this guy cube there. I'm like, that's it. That's where I should put this. It was like, here I am again, like coming up with an idea for a right. place before I get permission to do it, you know? And so that's where that came from. And so it was a matter of time that um, I started to hone that vision of like how to pull it off. In the interim, a new director came on board that had known me through working my work at uh, at the Morton Arboretum. I was going to be doing some works there, and and Scott came to me and was just like, "Hey, we should do something," you know. And I'm like, "I know exactly what I want to do." <laughs> <You know>? So, <clears throat> yeah, and and so then what I did for that piece is I had to work with um, a company called Pilkington that makes skyscraper glass, and um, and so I used half the glass of the house. I use that as kind of my model. I'm like, I want to work with half the glass of the house and make a sculpture out of that that does what the house does. It like, it situates you in relationship with the natural setting that it's in um, while also bringing the sky down in a really intimate way. So it's a traditional, nice traditional sky cube. It's just it's made out of glass and it's mirrored inside and out. And so I had to kind of develop a way to pull that off that was feasible and that would, um, be cleanable and durable mm -hmm. um, and actually movable because it wasn't a permanent work. They, they don't have like a permanent uh, sculpture garden there. They, they, they are, you know, I'm an artist in residence there, so I'm able to come in and do something, but it needs to leave when I leave in the end of the year, you know? So that was also a challenge just to create a work that could stay there if they perhaps wanted it to stay, but also could be um, taken apart and, and built again in another location and that was really really challenging so that's part of the one of the hats I have to wear is not just you know thinking of fun things that will move me and move visitors uh, into a deeper contemplative place but also like the engineering behind it and uh, and working with um, you know big industrial companies that make you know skyscraper glass by the truckload and I just need like a few pieces <laughs> to yeah. make this cube. So that, that was challenging. Yeah. Um, to source that. 
Yeah, because it was during 2020 and nobody could get anything. Mm. And I found the last stose of it, which is <clears throat> a glass um, in the glass world, like a stose, which is a German word basically where we get stock from. It's a huge um, like crate of glass, 10 feet by um, 8 feet by maybe a foot wide. And it weighs, you know, it's got in it um, 22 pieces of 8 by 11 foot glass. It weighs, you know, tons and tons. So it's not easy to move and you, you, you can't buy a piece of it. You have to buy the whole thing. So that was a challenge. It's like, how do I get this glass? Can I get a piece of it? Or can I get the pieces I need? I needed about two, four, six, eight. Uh, I needed about 10 pieces um, because I was laminating front to back. So it was mirrored inside and outside. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's not just like the normal traditional sky cube that I make is only has one mirror and it's a 45 degree angle mirror cutting through corner to corner. There's no top to the cube and the face is cut up. So you're just looking at basically half a periscope. You're just looking mm -hmm. through a face, a cutout on the face of the cube at a 45 degree angle mirror that's reflecting the sky above and there's no top. So just the sky just pops right there on the face of the cube through the mirror. This one, I have the sides of the interior of the cube and the back of the face of the cube also mirrored. So wherever you go, the mirror, the, the object becomes invisible in a sense. It's a non-object. It's reflecting everything else um, around it. And so as you come off axis on the sky cube at, um, at uh, sorry, if you, as you come off axis, um, on the sky cube at Farnsworth House, which is named Image Continuous, um, you don't just see the sky, it starts pulling in the trees mm. and, it, and, it, and it turns them in 90 degrees so the trees are actually kind of floating in a unique way uh, in relationship with the sky when you come off axis to the side and then eventually it, it just turns into, you know, if you go around the, the cube far enough, you just see just a wall of, of mirror, mm. which if, which now again is reflecting you and the landscape that you're in, which is something we don't ever experience. We don't see ourselves in relationship with the landscape that we're in. Um, you might walk past yourself in a window and have a moment, you know, where you're like, oh, there, there I am in the city, you know. But um, unlikely that you're going to think that. Um, but a pure mirror, and now this is what's unique about this work too, is that it's a first surface mirror. So the mirror is on the face of the cube, um, not on the second surface. Like if you go to a picture of yourself, picture yourself in the bathroom. You walk up, you look at your teeth, you're like, I got something in my teeth. If you open your mouth and look in the mirror in your bathroom, that's a second surface mirror. It's a, it's a quarter inch piece of glass and on the face of the glass is nothing. On the back of the glass is silver. So you're seeing two reflections of your teeth. If you look carefully, you'll see a ghostly image of your tooth coming off of the actual glass surface because all glass is reflective mm -hmm. and then the darker image of your you know, more opaque image of your teeth coming from the silver mm. so you're always doubling you're getting a doubling of yourself um, in the normal mirror the mirror that the sky cube the, the, the image continuous work is made out of is not that it's first surface mirror so the front surface of the glass has the silver on it baked into it it's called a pyrolytic coating and and so people walk up to it and they say why do I look so clear in this mirror? Why does this look so like defined in a way they've never really encountered? And, and that's why, because there is no doubling. Your, your eyes are picking up in a normal mirror, a slight fuzz on the edges. You would never know it was there. How did you discover that? Just through trial and error or? Well, as a kid, I, yeah. I discovered it when I was looking at my teeth. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a true story. Yeah. 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 I had to ask one of those impossible questions to David which was how would he describe art? Or in particular, how would he describe his approach to art? There's a phrase that I love to use um, I, I, that builds on another kind of concept that I use a lot uh, to explain what I'm doing. And it's um, being, like ontologically, right? Being is interrelational beholding which means like to exist to live to be alive means to be in an interrelationship not just one way it's going both ways with with everything around you um 
but particularly a kind of interrelational beholding, not just a looking at um, or perceiving like a thing or the thingness of a thing, but to be vulnerable before it so that it can affect you and you can affect it. So there's in the word beholding both an action and uh, contemplation. You know, the action is like the effort it takes to hold something uh, and to attend it, right? But there's a being which is kind of a, an openness that is relaxing, just letting down the armor and the layers and the facades, the ego. And I think to really be, to really exist, we're called in, um, to, to, to be in that way, to be in a place of what I call a third kind, third kind of scene, which moves beyond spatial scene, maybe is the first kind of scene, and then interpretive scene is maybe the second kind, as you interpret something, good or bad. That's all done through the, the faculty of memory. You compare and contrast with the past. So you're always looking through the lens of the past when you're using the, that second kind of scene, which is where we usually stay. And that's a very left brain, left hemisphere activity. But when we take our, our conscious like experience and we move it back into the right brain, and we move through the lens of the past into the present, immediacy is, is key there. You become very vulnerable and very open. And in that place, that third kind of scene, which I call a kind of beholding that transcends language and thought, um, it's a very precious and tender place to be, but it's transformational. And that's what my art is trying to do. That's what I think art in its best, uh, at its best state is doing. It's, it's tripping the viewer or the participant really into a state of disorientation and in doing so hopefully if they relax back into it which often you do in a museum in a way you don't in the world right because you're going there to be open you're like what, what i'm gonna go learn something i'm gonna go like experience something it's like what churches used to be like that's what museums and sculpture gardens become in some ways to some people i feel like they're holy places to to change how you see, right? And to do that, you have to open yourself. And so in that disorientation, hopefully, if, if the person surrenders in a sense, it leads to a reorientation. So my work is about that. It's about a gentle disorientation that can lead to a reorientation. And so it's important that I work with these elements in a way that, like, disrupt you and trip you confuse you, leave you scratching your head like, what the heck, how's the sky, what's happening? And when you're in that state, you can't use the past because there's nothing in your experience that relates to what you're encountering, thus the disorientation. And in that place, you're, you're, you're kind of tripped right through that lens of the past and you're found, you found yourself in a state of wonder in the present moment and the interrelational beholding and a place of true being and I think that's it I mean that's the most beautiful place you can be you're truly present in that in that moment Thich Nhat Hanh says like you know in a single breath and in a single step of mindfulness a single mindful step a single mindful breath you come into um, enlightenment there's no like great journey like oh someday I'll, I'll reach nirvana it's just that it's just being tripped into the present and we are so good and our minds have evolved to be so good at being um, out of that present to be locked into fear locked into the past worries um, projecting fears of the future so to give that gift to somebody that's what art can do it can like pull you into a truly present true beingness moment so your your you know justinness and my davidness are like here, right now, connecting, and the ego and the and the layers and the past and the future is all gone, and we're just we're here, mm. and there's this interrelational being with that I think is so essential, and you can do that with a blade of grass, a tree, the sky, you know, anything, even when you drive, and my work was trying to help you know offer opportunities for that, an encounter with that, and then that hopefully leads to the conversations like this that can maybe be continue, continue that helpfulness. So it's very practical. It's not some mystical thing. I'm, I'm really looking for a practical way to use art to help people truly encounter life 
you know, as I, as in its fullest sense, you know, to flourish as a human, to be able to more accurately navigate their interior and exterior world, which of course you can't do if you're in a reactive state all the time. So if you can become present and see, you can create a space between the stimulus and the response. And in that space is a whole world of opportunity, of freedom. But it takes a willingness to step into kind of an uncertainty to, to find that freedom. And uh, I think that's where love is and that's where life is in, in that the freedom of uncertainty. Mm. I love that. It's a pretty good definition, my man. <laughs> Thanks. I've definitely written a lot about it and thought a lot about it. For more on David and his work to help us all connect and pause, please go to davidwallacehaskins.com and check out his experiential installations of light, space, time, and sound that invite you in to explore the wonder all around us. I'd also like to thank Sleeping At Last for providing our show's soundtrack. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music. To Design Love's audio engineer, Steve Wick, who loved this episode so much, he started watching his favorite artists and wanted to share. You know, over and over again, I say, we don't make mistakes. We have happy accidents. So today, let's have a happy accident and see what we can make out of it. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. Tell others about our show on your social of choice and stay tuned for more of season eight coming soon. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash Design of Podcast. See you next episode.